Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Ingrid Cochran. We're going to have a very interesting conversation um, as we're going to explore kind of what is next in the trauma-informed movement. Um, We will have this theme for the first couple of episodes for this year. So happy new year. Um, Our first guest for this year is Jesse Kohler. He is the executive director of the Campaign for um, Trauma-Informed Policies and Practices. Um, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I want to give you the space to share with our audience who you are and what you do and uh, and then we'll kind of jump into our conversation about what's next for the trauma-informed movement. Yeah, thank you so much, Ingrid. It's so nice to be with you. Um, I, I, like you said, Jesse Kohler, I serve as executive director for the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice, or CTIP, and I serve in that position on loan from another nonprofit organization called the Change Campaign, for which I am uh, the founder, chair, and president um, that allows for me to serve in this capacity in CTIP's startup phases. Uh, I was born and raised in a very loving family uh, outside of Philadelphia mm. and had um, some childhood adversity and developmental adversity that I faced. I had an eating disorder when I was 13 where I had choked on a piece of food and um, had vicious anxiety attacks whenever food was near my mouth for about four months. Um over at the end of that summer, started eating again. And then two years after that, between ninth and 10th grade, my best friend from when I was three years old passed away um, in a plane crash. He and his father uh, died tragically. And then that was a very traumatic moment um, that, you know, disrupted my family at, at large, the the community at large, and, and certainly um, myself. I, I struggled in school. I was diagnosed with ADHD, depression, anxiety, various um, sort of labels were were put on to me at that time, um, but had the support in, through both of those traumatic moments, had a tremendous amount of love yeah. and support around me that really helped me heal. Um, and then I uh, was a big baseball player. That was probably the most healing thing for me um, was, you know, working out baseball, time with my teammates, stuff like that. And um, that took me to Oberlin College. And when I was in college, I I was originally I played on the baseball team, but was a pre-law major in in a in a major called law and society that the college Mm -hmm. has. That's interdisciplinary study, wanted to be an attorney. Um, after college, if baseball didn't work out, I was a division three baseball player, so it probably wasn't going <laughs> to pan out as a career. Um, but at the end of my second year, um, I was wrongfully arrested by a now infamous store in Oberlin called, uh, Gibson's. And that really made me question, um, that future trajectory and direction. Yeah. Um, and I saw a different side of the quote unquote justice system than I grew up. Uh, seeing. And it really, uh, you know, my whole time at Oberlin, I was certainly exploring my privilege. But in the courtroom, you know, I met folks who were from um, rural poverty and were people of color in the courtroom and the various ways that multiple dimensions of capital, uh, Mm -hmm. economic capital, certainly, but also linguistic capital, cultural capital, social capital, capital. showed up in the courtroom that day um, was, was really transformative time for me uh, and through court-mandated community service and newfound appreciation and uh, passion around promoting social justice, well-being throughout society. Um, I got into nonprofit work that took me back to Philadelphia um, to start my career in the nonprofit world uh, there. Yeah. Okay. That... um you know, that story is very complex and it definitely resonates with me as I've had similar incidents with um, law enforcement and feeling like kind of wrongly accused or, um, and yeah, it is eye-opening to see how easily um, people can get uh, trapped into the system 
um, and how it can be unjust. And the and again, the varying levels of capital, especially social capital. Yeah, and the impacts um, that that has um, following in the ways that it didn't promote well-being or any sort of recuperation it was very punitively based. Mm-hmm. And then when I got back to working in Philly, um, you know, some of the students when I worked at a, I worked at a high school in Philadelphia for a nonprofit that had a 95% uh, student or 95% of the student population was black African-American. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was one student that was a little bit late to school one day and um, the police thought that he was like, like police literally put him in the back of the car for just being late to school and like just recognizing the disproportionality. Like it was a unique experience as a white person to be mm-hmm. followed in a store, to be, to have the experience that I did. And then I, I'll never live or understand fully um, what it's like to be a person of color in this country, for sure, um, and other areas um, of intersectionality. Um, and, and, you know, when we talk about gender, history, culture, trauma, mm-hmm. um, you know, various areas, but uh, that are worth diving into and discussing further. Um, but I just, it was, it's been an, a continuing journey of learning and growth and a lot of eye-openings to, you know, again, I had it about as good as anybody entering the system could, and it was. Yeah, that's interesting. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This podcast is supported by St. David's Foundation, a community-focused and equity-driven organization supporting health and well-being in Central Texas. To learn more about St. David's Foundation, visit www.stdavidsfoundation.org. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Thanks for coming back. Thank you so much. Um, right before we cut to the break, I was telling Jesse Kohler, uh, executive director with CTIP, how much, you know, we've known each other for a couple of years now. And I'm just realizing how we have a very similar way into this work as I came in through um, the kind of the criminal justice system as well. My experiences with incarcerated youth um, really brought me into this work. And so thank you so much for giving that background. And so let's 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 talk a little bit about, you know, how you got into this work further and how you connected with CTIP. I know that um, 
you know, I always like to ask all of our guests, you know, what was your reaction when you first found out about the adverse childhood experiences study? Yeah, my my first reaction, I was I was so upset that I hadn't heard about it before. I, I the study was published when I was like four years old, and I didn't hear about it until I was twenty three. Um, you know, I, I so after that year uh, that I was working at the uh, Philadelphia High School for a nonprofit called Twelve Plus as the, one of their fellows, I saw the possibility for education system reform and the need for it for true transformation so that all people reach their full potential, which I just didn't see the system do. And so I got a master's in educational leadership. And during that year, I got an internship with the uh, Pennsylvania Office of Attorney General, Office of Public Engagement. Um, And my project was to help develop what was then called the Pennsylvania Trauma-Informed Care Network. This was at a time that there were spiking rates in overdose deaths. Uh, that was when fentanyl, carfentanil were being introduced into drug supply. And we were also trying to reduce recidivism rates. And so when I read the ACEs study, I was like, how have I not heard about this? I just graduated from a, an interdisciplinary major called Law and Society. And I hadn't heard of the ACEs study. Like that, that was shocking. But, you know, the, the, the pieces, especially because of what I was working in, because of the opioid crisis at the time, I remember that piece in the the original ACEs study that, you know, people with four or more adverse childhood experiences are more than 1,000% more likely to partake in intravenous drug use, and that that was not part of the comprehensive strategy to prevent overdose deaths, to create trauma-informed systems was such an eye-opening experience. And I was very fortunate uh, to have that internship in the first place, but through that internship, uh, I met a lot of the founders of CTIP. CTIP was founded in 2015, so when I was still in college. But through that, um, I you know met a lot of the folks who were leading CTIP, and a lot of them were at the end or later stages of their career. And right place, right time, with a lot of energy and passion around this work from my own lived experiences, my professional experiences, and and seeing the need. For this sort of work that I just wanted to dive in and do whatever I could do um, to help out. And that's how I got started with CTIP. But yeah, I, I remember sitting in an, uh, in a cubicle in the attorney general's office, um, just reading about the ACEs study and then like reading more about trauma-informed care. That was my introduction. And it was like, it was almost like kind of traumatizing and then re-traumatizing to like see what was going on in our society, the the lack of comprehensive action, especially at that time, there's been more and more growth to the movement. Um, And one thing that always hits me is after that year, I went through a comprehensive multi-year training program at an organization or institution called Lakeside Global Institute that does comprehensive trainings, went through their trauma-competent professional certification, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the big things was I was relearning a lot of what I had learned in my cubicle, but I was able to process it with peers. And it's so different to be able to go through the process and really process how I'm feeling instead of just internalizing everything. And it was much healthier to do a lot of the internal work that I needed to do. And over time, do more of that external facing work at the community center that I worked at after graduating from my master's and certainly leading to you know the work that I do now um, with CTIP. Yeah. And you were talking about how now there's much more, you know, awareness and effort into, you know, making systems trauma informed and just, you know, the awareness of the impact of trauma, not just on individuals, but also on communities. And so much of that is due to the work that CTIP has has done. Um, And also to kind of the pioneer of CTIP, Dan Press. Um, What um, what do you want to share with our audience about Dan and his vision and what that looks like today? Yeah. So Dan was the real heart and soul and like, he was like, he was like the energizer bunny for CTIP. CTIP was unfunded for a very long time. Um, and Dan had, so Dan was an attorney who had represented, uh, serving alongside and for and with native American tribes. Uh, He had done a lot of work on employment issues. He started the Tribal Employment Rights Office, uh, known as TARO, the Council on Tribal Employment Rights, CTER, um, and did a lot of work with 
lot of different uh, Native American communities um, and tribes. And at the end of his career, he read about the ACEs study and he learned about intergenerational trauma while teaching at Columbia University, a course on Native American history. And um, he sort of saw when he was 70, he started this like next career um, where he saw that all the work he was doing kind of missed the root cause of what was driving a lot of the negative outcomes that he saw um, in the communities that he worked with. He always told one story about he knew one father who uh, passed away from alcoholism, whose son also passed away from alcoholism. So what he saw those intergenerational cycles of trauma sort of turning, and, and that that was big for him. And so he became, at the end of his career, um, as uh, he stepped down from being a partner at a law firm called Van S. Feldman to becoming counsel and leading their pro bono work um, and started CTIP, started the, uh, there was another organization, I might get it wrong, but like the Roundtable on Native American Trauma-Informed Initiatives. I, I do think that I'm getting that wrong. Um, but you know, started a few different organizations and really took his years and decades of experience lobbying and working with Congress to really promote the importance of trauma-informed policy. Um, and I was very fortunate to have him take me under his wing and teach me so much um, over the years. But in 2021, uh, he got diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Um, unfortunately, just a few months after I started in the role as executive director on loan, the original plan was for me to be Dan's right-hand man, essentially, and just sort of support a lot of Dan's efforts, learn along the way. He obviously wasn't going to be in the role forever, but we didn't expect for, um, you know, him to get sick at all or for that transition to occur so quickly. Um, but over that last year from the summer of 2021, um, he passed away in October of 2022. Uh, he really worked at light speed to do as much as he could with as much time as um, he had left to leave a meaningful legacy in the world. Uh, he he made a one-time donation um, that really gave CTIP the capacity. We had two foundation partners um, who had donated very meaningful amounts of money, but not enough to hire a full-time staff person. Um, and, you know, Dan made a generous contribution that really jump-started the organization beyond where it was prior to that time. And even more meaningfully than any amount of money, which is incredible, but I say that, you know, Dan's legacy and what he donated, going back to the multiple dimensions of capital, go so far beyond the financial resources. You know, it was during that time that he came up with, we, we planned and launched the Building the Movement Workshop series, which was a huge haul across so many dimensions of society and four hours, nine four-hour workshops across the course of four months. Um, about like all the ways the trauma-informed approaches are being embedded throughout society to try to build a movement. And um, he came up with an initiative that we now call Press On in his name, in his honor. But it's this coalition of coalitions and recognizing that the most trauma-informed way to go about both policy and practice and getting people activated and advocating and together is to develop networks of cross-sector coalitions at the community level, regionally, at the state level, nationally, and hopefully someday globally, where you know we are embedding this work in community, but we are able to learn better through these networks what emerging and promising practices are taking place in communities so there's less reinventing the wheels. We can synthesize a lot of that information and then mobilize communities around that. And it also supports policy in the sense of instead of just sending a single advocate into a congressional office or into, you know, a meeting with a staff member or a legislator, you have groups of people who can support one another through the advocacy process. And you can even invite district staff members to join a coalition meeting and really see what we're talking about instead of just a single 
meeting and the idea that this bi-directional flow will propel the movement forward and sort of create perpetual growth is is embedded in that vision of press on um and it's with you know there there will always be sadness but a whole heck of a lot of love um that you know dan sort of really created an incredible foundation for ctip as an organization to move forward um and we've obviously done so much in since since he passed away Yes, that's a great story. I I think, you know, we have somewhat similar stories. I, I feel like Jane Stevens did the same for me with Pace's Connection. And so that really resonates with me and touches me. I'm I'm definitely glad that Dan's vision is being able to move forward. And 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 I'm also, you know, as someone who considers myself to be a historical trauma consultant, I think it is so important how he was able to see um you know this context you know the root cause and and so you know in our history um we tend to um kind of you know just move forward with this understanding that we are you know equal and we can tackle our our um our society's most intractable problems without having that context, without um, dealing with the past. And so I think it's very important that he was able to acknowledge that and really think through what it means to use policy to address root cause. Um, I think that's, you know, again, that's really important because it is something that is just ultimately lacking um, within our society. We're just now getting to the point where we we can really think through um, equitable policies and the understanding that, you know, kind of like what you were saying before when we were prepping around, you know, it's not one size fits all when it comes to to policy. So um, as you're kind of, you know, thinking through the beginnings, you know, moving forward in this movement, and as we were at the top of the year, what is next for, you know, not just CTIP, but just for the trauma-informed movement? What does that look like when you think about just the larger landscape? What what are the solutions that are coming next? What's the next wave within this movement? Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's look there's a sixteen dimension vision that um, my colleague uh, who's just brilliant Whitney Maris has developed that looks at the multiple dimensions of our society from before someone's born. How do we set someone up for success? How do we support families and communities and creating conditions of empowerment and safety? So that way, young people who are born into this world have a place to thrive. And then all of the systems that someone may touch until after, um, you know, end of life care as someone is is navigating end of life. And then also taking care of those who are left behind, like thinking through a more comprehensive strategy to really create a trauma for a fully trauma informed society. Um, I strongly encourage folks to go check that out. Whitney did a call yesterday. Uh, through our CTIP CAN call for January uh, that explored that. I think that, you know, as we build the movement, and CTIP very much has less interest in building itself as an organization and much more in creating a foundation that hopefully uplifts others. We've always said that we see ourselves as the tide that can lift all ships. Hopefully that as we grow, it's more about building the movement. I, th- I think the one, uh, a few things that the movement is uh, there, there's areas for growth. Um, one is recognizing, hearing diverse lived experiences. To what, to what you were just saying, I think that, you know, the ACEs, the original ACEs study, right, was done predominantly with a middle class, white, college educated population. I think that the ways in which we we talk about what trauma informed approaches look like the the communities that have been studied, the people who are doing the studies themselves. There is a legacy of um, white, white body supremacist culture, I think is the best way to say it, that, that um, embedding and, and continuing to uplift diverse lived experiences, understanding the ways in which different cultures naturally are you know, sort of promote trauma-informed approaches and uplifting that instead of making us call it one thing. The languaging and messaging 
is a big piece as we get that as we continue to navigate that and again it's a trauma informed movement is a pretty young movement relative to the timeline of forever sure, yeah. um, and so you know i think that one of the other things that as we continue to do a better job there um we will continue to move beyond just the echo chamber there is an incredible what i call the echo chamber where there's an incredible group of people who understand trauma-informed care and, and approaches, you know, and speak the language to each other and sort of have, we have our own jargonistic way of talking about things. And what we're talking about is a human experience, right? There, there, there doesn't need to be an echo chamber around who is involved in the quote-unquote trauma-informed movement. There, this is something that impacts so many different people. And so I think that continuing to find ways to embed this more deeply throughout society and really ingraining it as just a central operating principle, that paradigm shift as just a way that we act so that way our society can thrive, all individuals, families, and communities can thrive, which is CTIP's mission. I see that as a big piece. And again, that fits into that diverse lived experience mm -hmm. piece that that fits into co-creation and co-construction. Um, and again, I, I think uh, where where CTIP's mission is, and then and then I'll pause because I know that we'll talk more and don't want to dominate too too much the the conversation. But like the the real need going back to Dan's vision to embed the work in communities and let communities lead how this work gets done, and not try to come in with a one size fits all model or approach. The best, the most successful initiatives that we've seen. We, we call community-led trauma-informed prevention-oriented resilience building and healing-centered. Um, and, you know, there's a guide on CTIP's website that Whitney again wrote that talks about what that looks like. But we've seen these initiatives generate incredible outcomes. You know, the self-healing communities model, Laura Porter is another CTIP board member um, who in Washington State generated through the Family Policy Council uh, a way that the state supported communities, that communities were really able to lead the work and the state was able to support layering and looping learning processes over time that allowed for communities to learn and grow upon these initiatives and be sustainable and scalable. And over time, that generated in one county, there was like a 98% reduction in suicide rates amongst young people. And there was also simultaneously a reduction in high school dropout rates there was a decrease in uh, juvenile justice system involvement. There was a decrease in uh, birth teen parents and other metrics that sort of track different impacts and well-being throughout society. And as a result of all of that, there was also a $1.1 billion cost avoidance to the state, which was a 35x return on investment. And we would have expected that if that project or if the initiative had lasted more than 17 years, as we got to that 20, 25, 30 year mark, and we saw intergenerational uh, transmission of trauma reduced, there would then be an exponential return on investment beyond just that original exponential return on investment. And we would see that continue to grow. And I think that, you know, this is the right thing to do for people. This is also the right thing to do in a society that is currently struggling to coordinate and align across systems. And I think that, again, as we get that messaging right, as we engage diverse lived experiences from the middle of this country, from, you know, to every part of, you know, the ways in which trauma impact humans are pretty universal. The different forms of trauma are there, there are some commonalities, there are some differences, and, and we need to recognize that and have those conversations. And I think the trauma-informed approaches also help with those conversations. But getting to the sustainability portion um, that really allows for both policy and practice to work together to enhance and make our country stronger. And again, hopefully someday the whole world stronger um, for the benefit of everyone is Again, that I got a little bit more ambitious than I meant to originally, but um, you know, no, I, just... I definitely understand, it, especially around you know, even 
some of the things that you talked about because policy, especially currently, is so um, driven by evidence-based practices. And you kind of touched on, you know, even who is doing the research impacts what the outcomes look like and how we, in the narrative that we create around the outcomes. And, um, you know, when I'm a psychology professor, and so in in my space, we call it scientific colonialism in research. And there there's this, you know, again, not dealing with root cause. So seeing the numbers and thinking on the surface, you know, we can create policies that will address this issue um, without dealing with root cause and then finding that, you know, the policy may be effective. It may raise everyone up, but there's still gaps. So not addressing those gaps because of the lack of uh, attention to root cause, um, which is then addressed by bringing in the community because the community knows what their needs are. Um, and it's not a good practice to take numbers and, and apply it to a community or take very in my cookie cutter um, policy initiatives and apply it to a community um, without being very clear on the historical context, um, without being very clear on just our country's bias. Again, depending on who who's doing the research, who's funded to do research, um, and the the narrative that's associated with those numbers uh, is usually embedded within our our biases as a country because we are, you know, plagued by all the isms: capitalism, racism, sexism, <laughs> uh, and so that is our you know that can skew our our vision even when it seems like it's very straightforward, like you know, like statistical research. Um, so I appreciate your you know you expounding on that very clearly. Yeah. And then that's, again, tying it back to press on. Like, that's one of the things that really excites me about press on, where there is that community-led, like, participatory empowerment research Mm -hmm. that especially, um, you know, if we're able to provide funding for communities, which Mm -hmm. is something that we hope to be able to do, where, again, as we grow CTIP, hopefully it grows the entire movement, there is an opportunity to, you know, one, one quick sidebar, like, so much of the work that is done in this space is done for free. And it, it relies on volunteerism. The reason that I'm on loan is because of uh, enough privilege that I was able to take this job without the organization having to put me on the balance sheet. And that's been the case for three years. And it relied on Dan's privilege to be able to do a lot of the work and so many other board members. Again, I, I don't mean to just like, Dan was not the only person that started CTIP. It was a group of 25, 30 folks from across the country that I could go on about Sandy Bloom, Diane Wagonhalls. Again, I mentioned Laura Porter. Um, there, there are so many folks um, on our board that that have done this work for so long. But you know, one of the other things that needs to change is just that people rely on volunteerism, and or this movement has relied historically on volunteerism. There is not a sufficient economy for the scale and scope of the work that is trying to be done um, at any level. And so, you know, anyway, getting back to press on, like if we are able to support communities in that way through a different approach, we can develop more, at least evidence supported practices, promising practices, like, you know, to to get evidence base is a a process that I don't want to miss out on the importance of that. And it, it's not horrible, but again, like we are not, it, it's not empowerment based. It, it is not participatory. It is not community led enough. And certainly then implementing that into a different context, into a different community is a process. You need to have buy-in from the community. You need to, yeah. it's not just this cookie cutter example that automatically fits in that. I don't know of any example that that's the case. And if there is one, it is in the minority of how anything evidence-based truly works. You need um, it's, it's a lot more complex than that. Yeah. And that really kind of ties into Dan's work. Um, because in my experience thus far, I found that through, you know, kind of going back to the scientific colonialism, we kind of been separated from our indigenous practices and indigenous practices, you know, that is how we have kind of this roadmap in understanding of how we heal ourselves in our in our in our community and um 
And that stripping of those Indigenous practices has really led to a, a lot of trauma and definitely, you know, intergenerational historical trauma. But then we are at a loss for how to heal because of that. Or even if we're not at a loss, we may be restricted through through policies and, and, and practices and procedures that prevent us from engaging Indigenous practices. So I think this conversation is, you know, it's full circle. Um, because as we lean more on community to kind of solve their own problems, meaning that, you know, policy and other institutions get out of the way um, that allow them to, you know, lean on their own indigenous practices or create new ones um, that they know will heal their community because they are the community and it really should be in their hands. I think that, you know, this is the way forward. This is kind of the future of the trauma-informed movement. So I'm glad that CTIP is kind of leading the way in this space. Yeah. And and there are some, you know, to give credit where it's due, there, there are champions who recognize this in policy circles. Whitney is also, Whitney develops so many resources. She's, she's, she's just absolutely incredible. Shout out to Whitney. I wish that, absolutely. We should, <laughs> I wish that the whole world got to hear her. Um, but she's working on a policy report. We, we did one in 2022. We did one in 2023 that continues to see not just like her analysis is beyond just looking at like the word trauma-informed being in a policy, but really are people integrating trauma-informed policies. And, and a lot of that's done at the state level. Mm-hmm. And at the federal level, there's the Rise from Trauma Act that would, you know, as a bill, Section 101 creates a grant program for cross-sector trauma-informed community coalitions um, that really allows for community to lead. There's another bill called the Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act that, again, gives uh, would provide funding to cross-sector community-led coalitions and CMWRA is working to uh, promote population-level resilience in advance of extreme weather events instead of being so reactive yeah. with support when there are more and more extreme weather events. We can build capacity in communities that allow for more efficient and effective rebuilding coming together. It, it's harder to learn regulation skills when you're dysregulated. Like it's it's harder to have social connections, critical connections, and all of that when you're just trying to survive day to day. And so if we create all of that in advance within community, if and when there is an extreme event or, or a widely traumatic event, then it is easier to and to to rebuild and, and and you rebuild better. And hopefully communities are not struck with any extreme weather events and they are still better positioned and able to deal with the challenges that they currently face right and then even beyond just policy um well it was it was authorized by the support act in 2018 which was a bill related to a federal response to the opioid epidemic but there's an interagency task force on trauma informed care that across federal agencies is asking a lot of these same questions has done engagement with and, and outreach um, to communities. Um, and there's a little bit of a lapse there. The Support Act um, sunset in 2023. And there's now a, re- a reauthorization bill um, that would allow for that work to continue. But, um, you know, so there is good policy. I mean, there, there are people that recognize this, but I think that at a systems level, um, again, we we think about systems and, and shout out to Sandy Bloom for teaching me uh, this, and I hope that I do her and this topic justice, but trauma doesn't just impact people, right? Trauma impacts families and communities and systems at large. And when we look at the dysfunction, the fragmentation that exists at a systemic level, the lack of coordination and alignment and integration across our systems, even the best actors, this goes beyond any individual actor, right? This is working to heal and bring a trauma-informed lens to the system as a whole so that it can function better because there are a lot of people that are working to do this. Healing Cities Act in Baltimore that was passed, the Elijah Cumming Healing Cities Act, works to coordinate and align systems in addition to providing training to city agencies. And, you know, recognize we, we are beginning to recognize trauma at a systems level, the way that when systems are traumatized and fragmented, 
that perpetuates stress and adversity disproportionately on marginalized uh, communities and individuals and families that then perpetuate negative outcomes at the individual family and community level. Like we so often put the onus and burden of trauma and resilience on people or on families when we need to take, like there needs to be accountability and also it's impossible in some cases to navigate the complexity and traumatized culture and system that, I mean, you know, we're, we're just learning about a lot of this. So it's understandable. And also now that we know it, we need to take meaningful action. And I went on that just to thank and, and mention and say that there, there are a lot of good people at a lot of levels that are recognizing this. And that gives hope for that growing movement to continue to make headway in this work moving forward. Yeah, that's something that I definitely experienced. I um, worked as a, a state official for Tennessee, and one of the ways that I became disillusioned in my work was because of the, you know, the difference in power dynamics and how, you know, families and individuals were expected to do things that systems could not. And obviously the power dynamic was on the side of the system and how it seemed so unfair to to really believe that an individual would be able to heal themselves um, while being embedded within systems, again, with all the isms, the racism, sexism, and, and how there was clearly an expectation for individuals to be able to overcome while being embedded within these systems that were traumatizing and obviously traumatized themselves. So um, I, and I love uh, Dr. Bloom. Um, I always uh, quote her with, uh, I believe the term is a biocracy and how all of our systems need to be focused on human needs. And, 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 and I think that that's a, a great way to view the world. And, and it also is a really good way to understand how far we need to go um, in our systems because they are seemingly <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> they are in contrast to the, how the human body works and the human needs and human desires. So, Yeah. And it, uh, you know, the, the ways in which she's really eloquently stated how systems are living and we need to and organizations and you know as as we do this work at multiple levels um she's an inspiring person and one thing just to mention going back to like my upbringing that that i think is really important and i say to a lot of groups and why i got an education um I'm, i've now obviously some of some of the work is still involved in education but but that beginning of my career was a recognition that you know i, I was hurting i i have had traumatized responses i've struggled with substance misuse i mean i've struggled with like i said earlier depression anxiety like um no judgment or shame for anybody who uh experiences those i think that psychological strength is not the absence of those things psychological strength is being able to discuss those things and and feel fully yeah. in in those feelings right i think that that's that's an important conversation and that destigmatization that um is is continuing to be worked on in our society is so important and young people are really inspiring with that um but you know through those times and uh when i was i am where i am because so many people invested a lot in me and every child everyone uh, not everyone needs to be the executive director of CTIP, not what I'm saying, but like when we build communities of support that uplift people, that provide opportunities, my coaches, my my parents, my, you know, some teachers and people that I had around me that my, my friends that provided opportunities for healing and something to look forward to and something to navigate through adversity that then in being able to navigate through that adversity because of supports that I had being able to grow what I think we oftentimes call resilience, but post-traumatic growth, post-traumatic wisdom, and then having folks, mentors, Dan, Sandy, Diane, uh, so many others who have poured so much into me, you know, uh, there's, it is something that I believe our systems can do for everyone. If our systems are focused on truly creating 
nurturing and supportive environments and reweaving the social fabric that has become so frayed over a, a long period of time, right? Yeah. Uh, this is a, a real kind of call to action to what does it mean to legislate positive childhood experiences? How do we create social capital and social support within our society through policy for children so they feel the love and, su- and support that you felt as a child and as an adult? You know, I think um, that is worth exploring because so much of our uh, focus in this movement is in trauma um, and how um, you know, tr- adversity has, you know, is negatively impacting individuals, communities, and systems. Um, and we need as much um, effort and attention into what does it look like to build up children and young adults so that they have um, those positive experiences that um, can be, and, and as the research is showing now, much more impactful than adversity, especially um, in younger years so that they can, you know, you know, I guess, you know, it's a debate whether or not we're, we're calling it building resilience, but, um, but definitely that they have a foundation of support that makes it, um, easier for them to deal with or creates a buffer against adversity. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of conversations about language and again, at the rather <laughs> like relatively infantile stages oh, of the movement, like goodness. recognize and honor <laughs> the various language that different people use to communicate more or less very similar things. But yeah, how do we create conditions throughout society so that way everybody can thrive, right? How do we really understand in in those seven positive childhood experiences? And they don't offset adverse childhood experiences, right? But it provides um, buffers, like you were saying, or it can, like, how are we intentionally creating those sorts of conditions for for everyone. Um, so that way we have the strongest society possible from an economic perspective, from a social perspective, you know, across the board, it, it is uh, necessary for the functioning of our world moving forward. Yeah. What do you want our audience to to take away from this conversation? So solutions, but also call to action where they can get more information about CTIP, how they can be involved. And, um, you know, what do you want to leave with our audience? Yeah. So um, I, I mentioned a number of resources throughout the, the division, our guide to community change. We have a workforce toolkit. There, there's a lot of toolkits um, that have been developed. They are on our resource center. Everything that CTIP does um, is free, open access to the public. We want for it to be used. Uh, you can go to ctip.org, ctipp.org, go to our resource center. That's a great place to get more information. There's an advocacy series um, to support not just advocacy around trauma-informed approaches, but also trauma-informed approaches to advocacy. How are we congruent with the model that we're trying to promote in the world is something that we're trying to continue to build. And in that, um, we are in the movement to build a movement and co-create and co-construct CTIP CAN, our community advocacy network, which I mentioned we have monthly calls. I mentioned the CTIP CAN call earlier, but you can join CTIP CAN for free and be part of the movement. Take action around the two bills that I mentioned earlier, the Rise from Trauma Act and the Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act. As we continue to move on, we want to uplift diverse lived experience. We want to have everyone be a part of that advocacy network to promote legislation um, at all levels and also advocacy that is not just about legislation, but practice change and mobilizing supports within communities or for an individual um, or for oneself. And so, you know, I definitely encourage folks to go to CTIP's website, sign up for CTIP CAN, um, and then recognizing, again, we will continue to do more work around coalition building. If anybody is part of a coalition, we are about to do a climate community of practice, which you can find more about on our website, but communities that are organizing to build population level resilience to uh, climate related or or extreme weather events. And in advance, like we were talking about with the CMWRA, and uh, you can still sign up for that. You can find the guidebook for communities, but for folks that are 
engaged with community coalitions. There is a community of practice. And as time goes on, we hope to do a lot more of that um, and, and other sorts of community coalitions as well that are organized uh, differently as we build out that press on network. And so a lot of resources on the CTIP website, I know that it can be overwhelming at times, um, but you know, it's, it's there to explore and share and please sign up and be a part of the movement in whatever way um, feels right to you and share with others. Yes. Thank you so much, Jesse. If you had to kind of put one word to kind of this next phase or the future of this trauma-informed movement, what would it, what would it be? Uh, my, my words always love. Yeah. Um, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, definitely shout out back to Philly. With that. But uh, <laughs> I, um, yeah, again, I think that it's more about a human experience and recognizing that we can provide supports that uh, address the root causes that we talked about and also help us move toward uh, a better future. Yes, for sure. Love is one of our um, guiding principles at Paces Connection as well. I believe that is definitely um, kind of the, the not the, the root cure, <laughs> not the root cause uh, of the um, space that we're in as a, as a collective right now. Um, Jesse, I want to thank you so much for joining us and giving us um, your background and definitely sharing what CTIP is working on and, and your perspective on the trauma-informed movement. Um, we will, you know, we'll definitely want to have you back and, and touch base. Um, we uh, at Paces Connection consider CTIP to be kind of our, our brother organization. So, <laughs> so thank you so much for coming today. And thank you so much to our audience for joining us. We'll have um, our next session. We'll be continuing a conversation on um, scientific colonialism and anti-pathology. And so we'll um, please be on the lookout for our next episode. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.